like to welcome you to today's episode of the basically the drop zone. Uh, we have Parsha Korach for outside of the land of Eretz Israel, and inside the land of Israel is Parsha Hukat. So I just want to share some insights and bring down some things that I have uh, had the opportunity to study and look at. So we'll see uh, basically how many different things we can get into and uh, go from there, basically. So Baruch Hashem. All right. So first thing is I want to begin with Lakute Torah. So... In this edition, it brings down about the staff of Aharon uh, from the fifth reading. And the staff blossoms and turns into almonds. So I'm going to go ahead and pull up uh, my little cross-reference here, which is actually going to come from the writing of the prophet Yermiyahu. So this is from Yermiyahu chapter 1, what I'm going to share. So let's start in the Kute Torah, though. It says, the almond is the quickest growing fruit or produce that exists. It grows faster than grains, olives, figs, and any other fruits and vegetation. The Midrash Kohelet 115b states that Almonds only take 21 days to grow. It is for this reason that it is called shaked, which means quicken. And it says, as the verse states, shaked ani al devarai la asoto, la asoto. It says, I am hasty to fulfill my word. The hastiness represented by the almonds is a hint to the greatness of the kehuna. So if you look at this verse, I'm actually going to read it without looking at uh, transliterated Ashkenazi because it's like La Asoso. And I'm like, I don't think that's how you pronounce it, but it's La Asoto. It is uh, Yermiyahu chapter one, verse 12. Vayomer Adonai Eli He Tafta Lirot Ki Shoked ani al devari la asoto. And Hashem said to me, You have seen well, for I am ready over my word to perform it. Now, the word uh, for what he was asked in verse 11, because he said, What do you see? And I said, oh, well, went the wrong way. Hang on. 
go back. Verse 11 is before verse 12. There we go. So, Ma'ata-ro'e, Yermiyahu. So, what do you see? Yermiyahu says, Vayomer makel shaked ani-ro'e. So, he says, I see a branch of an almond tree. And the word shoked here, same as our word for um, our verse 12, uh, it is the word for almond. And so there's this idea that basically it is kind of like doing a, a play on words. Because he says, what do you see? And then he says, I see. I'm looking for the word here. Should be the shoked. Yeah, there it is. So the same word for almond is also the same word for watch, which is shakad as opposed to shaked, which is in Ezra 8, 29. So yeah, so it's it's a pun. So when he says, I see an almond tree, it's like I'm watching what I see, which is the almond. So I thought that was really neat as far as the the fact that the the almond has to do with watching and seeing. And so I want to go to the Gutnik Kumash for a second because Kola Shlita, which is Shira from our Lapid Legion, Shira Bat Shoshana, that is, she was bringing down, why does it say in verse 21 of our chapter 17, which by the way, if you look up Bami Bar chapter 17 in English, like I'm going to Bible Hub and I'm going to go to number 17. Number 17 according to the English Bible, only has 12 verses. So I just want to point that out in case there's any confusion. Uh, this goes to show even more so how if you don't have a Humash or a Tanakh, uh, it's kind of confusing. So if you are looking at an English Bible, the verses are uh, 1 through 12. And where it talks about blossoming almonds is verse 8. And then the verse that we're talking about being verse 21 corresponds to verse 6. Moshe spoke to the Israelites and each of their leaders gave them a staff, one for each of the leaders of their tribes, 12 staffs in all. So there was this whole uh, question that was brought down. Why does it say a staff, a staff? Because it says that he gave him a staff for each chieftain. And then it goes, or, well, to read the whole verse, it says, All their chieftains gave him a staff. For each chieftain, according to their father's house, a total of 12 staffs. And our own staff was in their, was amidst their staff. So, anyway, it, it's kind of like, okay, what's going on with that? So, the Gudnik Kumash brings down... The sign of the staffs was intended to prove two points. 
that the priesthood belonged exclusively to the tribe of Levi. So, when you look at this verse, let me go over here. Go over, where am I going to go? Go back to, there we go, our reading. Okay, so, spoke to them, give him a staff for each chieftain according to their father's houses. I'm going to read in Bahatorm. Here it is. Bahatorm does it better in the translation. It says, give him a staff for each leader, a staff for each leader. So if you go to the Hebrew, Yitznu, from the word Natan, Elav, Mate le nasi echad, Mate le nasi echad. Staff from each leader, a staff from each leader. So what is going on there? So, not finding any commentaries that really get into this. But I want to read this and see if this breaks it down. Because it says, to prove a point, a, point A, it was necessary to take staffs from all the other tribes, not merely to take one staff from Aharon and another from the rest of the Levites. So, when it says a staff, it's like, we're going to take a staff from Aharon, and then we're going to take a staff from the other tribes. Because, you know, it's like we just said here, not merely take one staff from Aharon and another from the rest of the Levites. So it's like, let's take specifically from the tribe of Levi, a staff that is Aharon's staff, not a staff that goes with another member of the tribe of Levi. So being being uh, very specific. So that's one thing. The next point, it says point B, it would not help to take two staffs, one for each, or one for Aharon and one for the rest of the Levites, for this would not add any additional clarification. So we're talking about amongst the tribe of Levi itself, and then we're talking amongst all of Israel together. So the use of the double language is like, well, the, the priesthood exclusively belongs to Levi, and it exclusively belongs to Aharon. So like, it's kind of tiered. But... To keep going, it says that, uh, let's go here. It says, if both staffs blossom, because if they took one for Aharon and one staff to represent the rest of the Levites, it says it would not indicate a choice of Aharon over the rest of the Levites, because if they would have just brought two staffs, one for Aharon and one for the Levites, both staffs would have blossomed. So it's just kind of like, okay, well, that's not going to help anything. Because again, we're looking to prove the chosen of Hashem to be the Kohen. This whole parasha is about who is the Kohen. You know, you can only have one. Korach was after that position. So, continuing on. 
It says, perhaps it would be a sign of our own spiritual qualities independent of his tribal affliction or affiliation. It says thus, the only option was to take one staff for the entire tribe of Levi and to write our own's name on it, which would indicate God's choice of the tribe of Levi in general and our own in particular. This also explains why the Torah does not record the names of all the tribal leaders that were inscribed on the staffs. In contrast to the many other instances where the tribal leaders are mentioned along their names. Bamibar 1.5, Bamibar 2.3, Bamibar 34.18. For here, the Torah's intention is to prove the superiority of the tribe of Levi, and hence, by default, the relative deficiency of the other tribes. Thus, to mention the other tribal leaders by name would be derogatory since it would stress what they are lacking. Cross-reference Rashi to Bereshit 3.7. And this is from Sikas Shabbos, Sikas Shabbos, so Sikat Shabbat, one of the Hasidic uh, writing sources, Parsha Korach 57.44. Goes on to say, as for the fact that the blossoming of the stick did not prove conclusively that there could not be a second high priest from the tribe of Levi, this was unnecessary for it was all for it had already been proven by the miracle of the fire pans back in chapter 16, verse 16, which demonstrated graphically that we only have one Cohen Haggadol. See Rashi to 16.6. So I actually want to go ahead and look at the Rashis on those passages. So give me a second here. Let's go to the 3.17 first. Yeah, Rashi on bear sheet 3.7. 3, okay, so Rashi 3.7. Rashi brings down talking about fig leaves and all that. All right, let's just read. Talking about the eyes of them being opened after the sin. It says, Scripture of them speaks here with the reference to intelligence, which is the mind's eye. So you may hear people talking about, oh, your third eye, your mind's eye. Well, that is a reference to intelligence. And it says, and not with reference to actual seeing. So when the eyes were opened, our intelligence was opened. And it says that this is not with reference to actual seeing. It says they knew that they were naked. Even a blind person knows when he is naked. What then and they knew that they were naked signify. What does that signify? One charge had been entrusted to them and they knew that they had been stripped or that they had stripped themselves of that. So being naked, they were naked of the commandments, which was actually one commandment. And we know that's still true today because the one commandment is the Shema. So going on he says this was the tree of which they had eaten 
by the very thing through which their ruin had been caused was some improvement affected in their condition. By the very thing through which their ruin had been caused was some improvement affected in their condition. That's from Sanhedrin 70b. So in other words, they were ruined by this tree, but they tried to perfect themselves by it or improve themselves. Like we're going to cover up with that which actually ruined us. That which stripped us, let's cover up with it, basically. So going on, it says, and why is not the name of the tree clearly mentioned? Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu never wishes to grieve anything he has created. Hence, its name is not mentioned in order that it might not that it might not be put to shame by people saying, this is the tree through which the world suffered. And you can also see Tankuma uh, 1-4. So I think that's very interesting why we don't know if it was a fig tree, if it was an apple tree, if it was a grain tree, or what it was. We don't know because Hashem is like, I'm not going to shame anything that I've created. So that's where she's tie in on why the tribal members of the other tribes, their names aren't written on the staffs or the names that are on their staffs are not uh, documented. A couple of other things that I just saw just as I glanced at this page, it says flowers and almonds. Brings down the Torah Menachem. In verse 23, we read, Moshe discovered the miraculous blossoming of Aharon's staff. Moshe came to the tent of testimony, and look, Aharon's staff had blossomed. It had blossomed, started to produce fruit, and developed ripe almonds. In the following verse, we read, Moshe took out all the staffs from before God to the children of Israel. They saw what had happened. This begs the question. Moshe appears only to have discovered the staff after it blossomed, shed its flowers, and developed ripe almonds. And it was at this point that he showed the staffs to the Jewish people. What then was achieved by the staffs first blossoming and producing unripened fruit if the miracles were not witnessed? Various solutions to this problem. Rambam explains that Moshe actually found the staff in its flowering stage and took it to the people before the fruit started to grow. Da'at Zekanim writes that the flowers that Moshe saw remained and the Jewish people saw others form and develop into almonds before their eyes. And Barbanel explains that all the flowers, unripened fruit, and almonds miraculously remained on the staff at the same time. So, three different opinions, and you synthesize them and can go from there. So, there's a lot here about when did the fruit develop and things like that, but I'm actually going to... Um, Take this picture for Kola so she can see what it's all about in the Gutnik. Rukashem. Make sure I got a good picture because sometimes you take pictures and it's just like, what was that? Rukashem. Okay. So that's that. That's the Gutnik Kumash. 
Rabbi Monk. I'm going to give me a monkey drop in here. Rabbi Monk brings down some beautiful things. Verse 17. Take from them one staff for each father's house. Mate, mate. So take from them one staff, a staff for each of his father's house. It is perhaps difficult to understand what this test could add to all that had been all that had happened before to confirm the selection of our own. After the many deaths, the conflagrations, the buying of Korak's followers, what was there left to prove? I just love that statement. We had so much happen in this parsha. What else do we need to do to prove things? People have gotten eaten by the earth. People have gotten scorched. A plague has gone out from the uh, the whole the tent of meeting, and Aharon stops the plague. And now we're gonna do the staff thing. It's like, what is going on? Note, however, that a spiritual hierarchy was now being introduced to the Jewish nation. And there was a need to have it take root in the hearts and minds of the people. The division of the people into categories, Kohanim, Levites, and Israelites, would now become fixed for all time as a part of the everyday life of the Jew. The budding of Aharon's rod would establish, would establish the status of of the Kohanim, and of the Levites as well. So Kohanim and Levites, the whole staff meeting is all about Kohanim and Levites. So again, another allusion, if you will, to why it says Mate Mate. We got the Kohen, which is a part of the tribe of Levi, but they're distinguished. And then you also have the tribe of Levi, which is distinguished from all the rest of the tribes. So staff, staff, the staff of Levi, specifically the staff of Aharon. So there's that. Then it goes on to say, the budding of Aharon's staff would establish the status, the status of the Kohenim and the Levites as well, since he was a member of both groups. This double selection, double selection, say double selection, aroused much jealousy for it stem for it seemed to be an exceptional privilege to be able to fulfill all the priestly functions and the levitical service as well that is why this demonstration was of such importance the privilege conferred upon the kohanim and the levites was accompanied by the obligation to teach and bless the people there were also serious economic restrictions they had to renounce all material possession in israel so here's the thing the kohenim and the levites it's like okay so you're gonna get this position but you're gonna have to renounce all material possession in israel and become consecrated to hashem so i mean sometimes we get mad at leadership or whatever because we're like oh well they get to do this or they get to do that which, by the way, is our own Yetahara. So if we're getting mad about that, you know, that's kind of a, a Musar thing we have to work out. But as we can see here that there's a prototype that, okay, so they're going to gain this status, but what are they going to give up? 
What are they going to have to sacrifice? You know, and that's always something to take into account because this tribe was the one that was in charge of the teaching and connecting everybody to Hashem. When people needed to get married, who's going to be the officiator? When people needed to get buried, who's going to do the service? You know, and, you know, who's going to run the temple service? Who's going to sing the songs? You know, these 24 7 uh, roles that need to get filled. They can't have a normal job and work the land and do that kind of stuff like the rest of the tribes. So everybody basically has their part. So it says they could not draw their livelihood from agriculture or commerce, but had to settle in the cities assigned to them. They were obliged to draw their sustenance from the 24 kinds of tributes and offerings that the Israelites were obliged to provide. So I just love talking about that because, you know, one of the things with Korak is he was material driven. And he was acting like he wasn't. And basically saying, we need to do away with the priesthood and how it currently works. So from the Jewish Wisdom and the Numbers, page 218, says the Mishnah associates Kehuna priesthood with 24. It's interesting to note that Ko, which is 25, is the first half of the word Kehuna. So we're looking at the fact that there's 24 associated with something that is 25. Going on, it says that the number of Matnot Kehuna the priestly gifts is 24. The Mizbeach, which is the altar, one of the components of the main chamber of the Mishkan sanctuary, exemplified the crown and symbol of the Kehuna. The sacrificial offerings brought in the dedication of the Mishkan, which was a total of 24 bulls for the peace offerings, were placed on the Mizbeach. The measurements of the altar of incense were one cubit by one cubit, which is six hand breaths by six hand breaths. If one were to encircle the perimeter of the Mizbeach with a thread to symbolize grasping its essence, the measurement would be 24 hand breaths. So it says, furthermore, there were 24 rings to the north of the Mizbeach employed in the slaughter of the sacrificial animals and eight pillars each with three hooks eight times three is 24 used to hang and fillet slaughtered animals okay so we got a crucifixion moment here we have pillars with hooks Here's another reason why we can't just go straight to the fact that Messiah was crucified on a cross. Most times people say it was a cross, but if you really think about it, it literally just says a tree. So it was a pillar or beam of some sort. But I just want to point out that if it's going to match what's being done in the temple, and it did, because he was being slaughtered, as they were slaughtering the Pesach animals, speaking of Messiah, they were being hung on pillars that had three 
hooks in them. So, yeah. Mishnah Midot 3.5. So that was Rabbi Monk with some Jewish wisdom of the numbers thrown in there. Baal HaTorim. Verse 23 says, Blossom, bud, and almonds. Ferach, uh, zitz, shekedim. Says the verse mentions three facets of the staff's germination, corresponding to the three individuals who sought to usurp the priesthood. Korach, Yerovam, and Uzziah. And you can find those... Says Uzziah, the 11th king of the Davidic dynasty. And then you have. Dun, 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 dun. Second Chronicles 2616. And uh, Jeroboam. Where is he at? We have first Kings 13 one. Says he was the son of Nabat, the first of the ten tribes, first king of the ten tribes that succeed that seceded from the kingdom of the Davidic dynasty. He also tried to usurp the priesthood. So there's that. This was the golden calf maker, by the way. And uh, as the Midrash says, brought down, he was upset that he couldn't sit in the temple like. Rehoboam could because Rehoboam was a king of Judah also Shekedim almonds has the gematria of 454 which is the same as Chazmonim it says I was looking at some footnotes but I'm going to go back up it says this is, an this is an allusion to the Hasmoneans who were the seed of Aharon and in whose hand the priesthood endured. So it's a foresight to the Hanukkah uh, account. Also, it says Moshe brought out all the staffs. The word Hamatot, the staffs, is defectively, is spelled defectively here without a Vav. And it says, for they were as dry when Moshe took them out as they were when he put them in. Footnote says, that is, when Moshe laid the staffs before Hashem, verse 22, Hamatot is spelled defectively. Likewise, when Moshe brought out the staffs, verse 24, the word is still spelled without a vav. Thus, when he brought them out, they were exactly as they had been when he laid them aside. They were dry. To which I bring up from the Kehert overview uh, from Parsha, uh, Parsha Matot. It says, what does it say? Yeah, par yeah Parsha Matot from the overview in the Kehert Humash says, All three subjects of Parsha Matot then are relevant to the impending entry into the land of Israel. On the personal level as well, they are relevant to each of us individually in our encounter with the material world and to our generation collectively 
standing as we were on the threshold of the Messianic redemption. This explains how the name of the Parsha Matot can be justifiably used as the name for the entire Parsha. The word itself means tribes. So when it says Moshe took out the staffs, it could actually be said Moshe took out the tribes. So that's interesting. Because it says two words are used in the Torah for tribe. The other one is Shevet. Interesting, both synonyms for tribe also are synonyms for tree branch. So Matot and Shevet also means tribe. Matot and Shevet also means branch. So it says, just as branches stem from a tree trunk, a tribe is a branch or division of the people rooted in its common ancestor, Yaakov. The difference between the two synonyms is that while Shevet refers to a soft, pliable twig, Mate, the singular of Matot, refers to a hard stick. As we just read, it's very, very dry, lifeless. Goes on to say, the Shevet owes its pliability to the fact that it is freshly cut from the tree or even still connected to it. In contrast, the Mate, which has long been severed from the tree, has therefore lost its elasticity. Now, what I love about this is because Aharon's staff his mate acts like a shevet. So there's this whole reconnected and grafting in process that you can really look at to where it's like, it's not lifeless. It's not severed. It's literally put back. So that which actually seems cut off and severed is actually full of life and it's vibrant as if it was a shevet, which is just kind of amazing to think about with the whole fact of bringing up that our own staff represents life and resurrection. This is how you can really look at how even though we die, we can be brought to life, as Mashiach talks about. So, that's that. It says, spiritually, Shevet can be considered to refer to the soul before it descended into the body, when it was fully conscious of divinity and its own connection to its source. Mate would then refer to the soul as it entered into the body and lost this connection, this conscious connection, at least temporarily, and had been charged with elevating the body and the portion of reality under its purview. In such a state, we must evince the inflexibility of a hardened stick in our devotion to principles and resistance to evil. If successful, we can face the challenges of life confidently and proceed to fulfill our purpose on earth and make reality into the home for God it was intended to be. Um, there wasn't, oh, I really wanted to share this from the Hasidic masters. So Chabad.org always uh, mashes up like the Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dover of Lubavitch, etc., and do a bunch of Hasidic teaching. So I wanted to bring this down because, and well, one more thing on the staff real quick uh, of Aharon. It says, the rod of God is Memtet, who has life on one side and death on the other as he changes from a serpent to a rod and from a rod to a serpent. Zohar volume one, 
262 bear sheets A. I was bringing that up because Moshe's staff and Aharon's staff both exhibited it, these qualities. Aharon's showdown was in Exodus 7. Moshe's was at the burning bush in Exodus 4. So Moshe's staff and Aharon's staff have kind of this likening. And I, I brought down how, you know, Moshe is like the Mashiach ben Yosef and Aharon's the Mashiach ben David. Well, that's even shown in their, in their staffs. So, anyway, but over here to the Hasidic masters on the verse 23 of chapter 17. Looks like we're just in that verse all night tonight. Ness, which is the word, the Hebrew word for miracle. It means elevation. The purpose of a miracle is to elevate those who experience it to a higher consciousness to a recognition of the divine reality which underlines or which underlies the natural reality we encounter in our everyday lives. So it's like your witness to a miracle, it takes you up on the consciousness scale. That's cool. But it says there are two types of miracles. A, miracles which utterly disregard the laws of nature, you know, like yam soup stuff, walking on water stuff. Um, you know, manna raining down from the sky, you know, things that happen to us in the wilderness, water from a rock, you know, uh, staff turning into a serpent, turning back into a staff and swallowing up other staffs and serpents, stuff like that. It says B miracles, which though they may be no less impossible by the standard of norms, no less obvious a display by the hand of God, nevertheless occur by natural means employing natural phenomena and processes to achieve their deeds. What I love about that is this is the essence of the miracles that Mashiach did. You know, everything, well, I mean, he's got the miracles that just utterly disregard nature, but most of what he did, he just kept it like, okay, pick up your mat and walk. Okay, stretch out your arm. Okay, go show yourself to the priest. Little girl, wake up. You know, things like that. Check out the meaning of that. It might seem that the second miracle's need to resort to the natural processes makes it less of a miracle. Quote, unquote, less of a miracle. It seems like that, right? It's like, come on, Yeshua, do big stuff. And it's like, that actually is big stuff. Why? Check this out. In truth, however, a miracle that operates through nature is more, say more, more elevating. A miracle that operates through nature is more elevating, hence more miraculous than a miracle that supersedes it. So, it says a sudden shattering change has not transformed nature. It's only gone beyond it. But when a miracle is integrated into the workings of nature, nature itself is elevated. Otherwise stated, a supranatural, supra, like above reason, that kind of miracle liberates the person who experiences it it from the natural order, but a natural miracle liberates the natural order itself. 
And this is the work of Mashiach being Yosef in our lives. It's not this over-the-top, beyond-nature type miracle. It's this natural miracle that actually liberates the natural order itself. Because what we're doing, we're bringing our natural into the Olam Haba. So we're transforming the world on it, the scale of its actual essence so that the order of life as we know it is actually elevated and lifted. Not this break open everything and just twinkling of an eye, switch it over. We actually have to go down into it and permeate it. And this is what I was talking about earlier in the week. And so it says to conclude, the bearing of fruit by a dry stick of wood would surely have sufficed as a divine sign of Aharon's closeness. But God did not simply make almonds appear on Aharon's staff. Rather, he stimulated it in the full natural process of budding, blossoming, and flowering, which is the emergence and ripening of the fruit. So, yes, it's a miraculous thing, but it's the natural way. So Hashem speeds up the natural process. Something that was something that takes place in 21 days was done in less than 24 hours. But it went through the natural process. So it was the the second type of miracle, the one that actually liberates nature itself. I just love that phrase, liberates the natural order itself. Those are the kind of miracles we want. Because the other ones are just going to be temporary transformations, and it's just kind of like, okay, so that's only going to last about two hot minutes, if that, because you're back off doing crazy stuff again. This is why the golden calf happened. Hashem split open, resurrected us, spoke with Ketorit coming from his mouth, Torah was going out, you know, lightning, shofar blast, and then we send Moshe up the mountain, and what we do, we make a golden calf. But the second time this happened, we're all crying our eyes out, making teshuva. It's Yom Kippur, and Moshe comes down with the second tablets. And guess what? There is no golden calf. So now, as we liberate this natural order and the previous events that occurred where we got the sapphire tablets occur, the natural order is going to match up with that other one without it just being this temporary breakthrough or uh, like code breaking the system type thing. So our own staff defied nature's laws and restrictions, yet it confirmed the phases of growth that the almond naturally undergoes. It transcended nature and did so on nature's own terms. Again, Mashiach working through nature for all of the miracles that he did is just absolutely incredible. You know, even if you think about the feeding of the 5,000, he literally took bread and fish. He didn't just go, all right, I'm just going to make a bunch of food for everybody. Boom. He's like, no, what do we have? You know, you start with what you have and we're going to make miracles out of what we have, which to me is mind boggling. So let's jump over into Torah Wellsprings. 
starts out, it says this week in chapter 16, verses 20 through 21, it says, Hashem said to Moshe and Aharon, separate yourselves from this assembly and I will destroy them in a moment. And it says, Moshe and Aharon prayed. As it states in verse 22, Moshe and Aharon fell on their faces and said, God, who knows all the thoughts of mankind? If one person sins, will you become angry with the entire public? Rashi explains, Hashem, or you, Hashem, don't act in the ways of human beings. When people rebel against a king, the king can't know who they are, so he will punish everybody. But you know man's thoughts, and you know who sinned. Hashem replied, you said, well, I will reveal who sinned and who did not sin. So there's a whole lot of stuff to say, but... It gets basically into saying this is the source for Taknun, which is in the Tefillah. So if you notice after our Amidash Moni Esrei, there's a prayer called Taknun, the supplication prayers. And I'm just going to go to that and uh, kind of break that down because the source of this prayer comes from the events of Parsha Korach. And so quintessential for repentance and uh, renewal and things like that says on most weekdays, Minka continues with Taknun, whether or not a minion is present. That's key. There's a lot of prayers you can't say if you're not in a minion. But this one is like regardless of if you have a minion, we are going to do it. It goes on to say. Taknun is omitted in the evening in the event that Minka begins late. And it also says on most fast days and from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, you put in Avinu Malkinu before this. And it goes on to say, there are also days in which Taknun is omitted. There could be like some kind of celebration, Bar Bar Mitzvah, Brit Milah, you know, uh, any kind of uh, special celebratory Yom Tov. So those things. Also, it goes to say, and if you have the men's uh, Arch Scrolls to door, you can see page 125, and it breaks out a list of those days. And it says, on those days, the Chazan goes directly to the full Kaddish. And individuals, if you're not praying in a menu, you just go straight to the Elenu. So the Takanun prayer where you put down your head and it says it is recited with the head resting on the left arm, preferably while seated. Elsewhere, it is recited with the head erect. Okay, so this is a good time, too, if you want to do the Tim Tebow style kneeling prayer or if you want to, you know, prostrate yourself on your face. But again, we don't do that on marble floors, so we're not prostrating on strange stone. But anyway, I thought that was a neat thing. And this is actually connected to a beautiful uh, story that actually is kind of tragic. But the beauty of it being the Kavanah that the Taknun prayer calls for. You know, and I, I mentioned on an Aliyah day when I got to guest host for Parsha Korak. In 5780, this year, according to this podcast anyway, that, um, you know, we in the world have to be like Moshe's and Aharon's. 
like falling on our faces and interceding for people who are trying to kill us, people who hate us, people who are disgruntled with us, you know, and just knowing that's the essence of the Takanun prayer. It's like this, this whole, like, I am dust to Shem. I am nothing. You know, I will be silent before my slaughterers. You know, those who revile me, I will, I will not revile them back. You know, like what Mashiach modeled for us. So, it says, Baba Metzia 59 tells a story. It says, this is a specific type of oven made from clay, or made from earthenware and clay. It's called a tanner. And it says, uh, which Rebbe Eliezer and the Chachmim debated whether it could become Tamei or not. Rebbe Eliezer was insistent that it could it couldn't become to me because it was made from clay. The Kakmim disagreed. So you have this Machloket basically that's set up. You have Rabbi Eliezer and the sages with Rabbi, uh, with, uh, yeah, Rabbi Eliezer and the sages debated whether it could become Tomei or not. Rabbi Eliezer was insistent it couldn't become Tomei because it was made from clay. The sages disagreed. So you got this whole thing going back and forth. So it says Rabbi Eliezer kept bringing proofs that the oven is tahor. It's clean. And he was very persistent until Chazal, the sages, the Chachmim, which were led by Rabban Gamliel, the teacher of Shaul Hashliak, Paul the Apostle. It says, but, so he, this guy, so the Chachmim led by Rabban Gamliel put Rabbi Eliezer into exile, like a ban. It's called a harem. It's like forbidden, off limits, disqualified, boom, you're out. Like, no more, we won't hear from you, all this kind of stuff. So Rabban Gamliel said, Rabban Shalalam, you know that I didn't do this for my honor or for the honor of my family. I did it for your honor that there should not be Machlokit and B'nai Yisrael. Rashi explains, it shouldn't become the style that an individual disagrees with the majority if... Every individual has the liberty to argue with the majority. There would be chaos in the halakhic system. Therefore, Rabbi Eliezer, uh, who insisted his halakhic ruling was correct, was dealt with in this very severe manner. Goes on to say, Rabbi Eliezer was married to Rabban Gamliel's sister. That's awkward, right? It's like, oh, these two individuals that have collided, it's like, well, there's a connection between the two. It's one person's wife, but it's the other person's sister. So that's a dynamic. It says, ever since Rabban Gamliel placed Reb Eliezer in a harem, Slika, it says, she made sure that Reb Eliezer never said the talk noon. She feared that her husband's prayers 
praying while falling on his face would be very powerful and it would harm her brother, Rabban Gamliel. Once she miscalculated, she thought it was Rosh Chodesh, but really Rosh Chodesh would be a day later. She was sure her husband wouldn't be saying Taknun because she thought it's Rosh Chodesh. So she didn't think it was necessary to stop him from saying Taknun. According to another opinion stated in the Gemara, she went to bring bread to a pauper, and therefore she wasn't present when Reb Eliezer said Taknun. Either way you slice it, pun intended, she was not there when he said Taknun. When at last she came to the room where her husband was davening, she saw her husband saying Taknun. She said, you can get up. My brother just died. Indeed, soon afterward, a shofar was blown, which by the way, shofars are blown when a great zodiac of the city dies. This is why Mashiach gave out a loud voice before his death. He was his own shofar, because what is shofar? The voice of Hashem. Going on to say, it was blown in Rabbi Ramban Gamliel's home announcing the Leviah. Says Reb Eliezer asked his wife how she knew Rabban Gamliel was Niftar. Niftar. She replied, I received a tradition from my, from my grandfather's home. All gates are closed except before someone who was ins insulted. So yeah, lots of stuff that goes on into that. But saying Takhnu with a lot of uh, intent and uh, emotion and things like that. This is the time to get emotional in your prayer during the Takhnun. But, you know, again, this was a great sage we're talking about. So he was so insulted that if he said Takhnun, the person who insulted him would pass away. So this is a good time to really let go of things that have uh, just struck you the wrong way or things that are hurtful, past things. These are time to let them go because, you know, we want to pray. We don't want to harm other people uh, on any level. Not that we would really have that power, but it's just kind of the principle there that you want to do this with a clear, uh, you, you know, you don't, you don't want to have any unforgiveness in your heart, basically. Because number one, we need to realize we need to be asking for forgiveness for Hashem for all of our errors. So Taknun really shouldn't be about a vendetta. Oh, I was hurt. Oh, I was da da da. Okay, yeah, that's a time to really deal with that. But even more so, let us deal with the fact that we've offended Hakadosh Baruku. So that's what the Taknun's about. So I I try to push myself in that regard of saying, hey, you know. My, you know, getting carried away in things and what what errors that I have for today, you know, iron the wrinkles out of me, you know, draw me closer to your shim. Why do I slack in different areas? Why am I not doing more? You know, what can I do to grow and mature? That's what the Taknoon prayer is for. And it comes from Parsha Korach when Moshe and Aharon are on their faces before people who are like, you guys are MSU. And y'all need to move out of the way. We can do better than you. A neat little note. It says, Reb Moshe Feinstein 
may his memory be blessed from the Igrot Moshe Orachakaim, volume 2, 25, discusses whether non-Jews have a mitzvah of tefillah. He writes, when they have a need like someone is ill or when they need parnasah, I think they are obligated to pray. Don't ask if so, why isn't prayer among the seven mitzvot of the Noahides? It is because Amuna means to believe that only Hashem gives Parnassah, heals the ill, etc. So by the way, Noahides is not really a thing, but just for text's sake, that's why I read that. Basically, it's saying that non-Jews don't have a mitzvah to pray, but they are called to pray when they have a need, which totally explains, you know, past life history of, you know, everything's good. And then I'm not praying, I'm not talking to Hashem, then everything's bad. And like, oh, I'm praying, I'm talking to Hashem. It's like, wow, you're literally living like a non-Jew. A Jew prays constantly, which just goes to show when Shaul says pray without ceasing. It's just kind of like, oh, that's where he got that from. I get it. He's speaking to Jews. He's not speaking to non-Jews. All right. So Thessalonica officially are not outside the covenant. They are covenant people. People who had prayers that they were obligated to pray. Not just pray when they're in need like a non-Jew. It says when one does, when one doesn't turn to Hashem with bitachon, confidence, and prayer, this means he doesn't believe in Hashem and that he believes in other matters. Even the non-Jews are obligated to believe in Hashem. Therefore, they obviously must also turn to him for Parnassah, Rafua, which is healing, and for all their other needs. What I thought was neat, too, is it says that uh, Rabbeinu ben Chaya elaborates, when one falls on his face closes his mouth and eyes or his eyes and mouth this demonstrates that he isn't able to see what can help him or to view the matters that will harm him he doesn't know how to take care of any of his needs he can't help himself unless hakadosh baruku agrees to it it is like his senses are annulled tied his eyes and mouth are closed he can't see or speak unless it's Hashem's will. For this reason, we pray with our feet placed together as though they are tied up. This shows that a person can't go out and take care of his needs on his own. The non-Jews do this as well because they put their hands together when they pray. They don't know why they pray that way. But the reason is to show that they don't have any strength. It is like their hands are tied and they are giving themselves over to the one there to help them. To receive one's needs and to be protected from harm, the feet play a greater role than the hands do. Therefore, we put our feet together and not our hands. So, if you really think about it, if you really look at the Jews and the non-Jews, if you kind of fuse the prayer aspect together, you have the hands and feet bound up. This is why Mashiach was bound hands and feet. Salvation is not just for Jews. It's for the whole entire world. And the whole entire world has to go from 
not just our hands and not just other things in the world, but only Hashem. So I thought that was neat about the hands versus the feet. Another thing here, they talk a lot about uh, Parnassah and the Taknun. So Taknun is, uh, it increases the mazel of your Parnassah, which is your sustenance and livelihood. So there's a lot about that. But Kiddushin 82 states, Reb Shimon ben Eliezer said, Did you ever see animals or birds with professions? Yet they have Parnassah without distress. So you know what? That made me think about Matthew 6. And I was like, so here's another. There's nothing new in the New Testament. Do not worry, Mashiach says. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Verse 26. Now, Kedushin 82 just said, did you ever see animals or birds with professions, yet they have Parnassah provision without distress? Matthew 5, 26 says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, which, by the way, means work. They don't have that profession. It says, yet your heavenly father feeds them, which says they have Parnassah without distress. From the hand of Hashem. He says, are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? I loved that. Uh, by the way, the month of Tishrei and the month of Nisan are months where Taknun is omitted. Uh, because these months are not months that we're called to be out in the field and trying to really, you know, be hard at work. Uh, it says, Rava told his students that on these days, the only way to get Parnassah is to work. Literally. But the rest of the year, they can earn their Parnassah by saying Taknun. So... Let's go back, because the way I said that is not matching this. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read this whole blurb here, and that'll help clear this up. So rewind. According to our discussion, we can explain that Rava was telling them Parnassah comes from Taknun. And it says, in the months of Tishrei and Nisan, we don't say Taknun. Rava told his students that on these days, the only way to get Parnassah is to work. Okay, so Tishrei and Nissan work, like literally, work hard, go do your fills, da-da-da-da, go out and make a living, that kind of stuff. The rest of the year, they earn their Parnassah via San Taknun. So, there you go. So, just the whole drop on Taknun and all that. I was trying to see if there was anything else that I was thinking of. But yeah, we don't say talk noon during those two months. And we spend extra time really uh, physically uh, exerting ourselves. So I want to finish up here with some Shonuf Pankis on Parsha Hukat. Because this is just one of those things where I'm just kind of like, wow, man. 
So first of all, there's a connection between the red heifer and the golden calf. The red heifer is likened to the mother who's cleaning up after the sun. Uh, and it says that you can find this. Where are we going to say? Rashi comments in the name of Rabbi Moshe Hardarshan on um, Barmibar 1922. It says, it is analogous to the son of a maidservant who soiled the palace of a king. They said, let his mother come and wipe away the excrement. Similarly, let the para, the red heifer, come and atone for the eagle, which is the golden calf. So, a couple of things. It says, the para aduma, the red heifer, alludes to the Torah Shebe'al Pei. The Ramban brings down, he teaches us that the para aduma alludes to the Torah Shebe'al Pei, the oral Torah, which is aduma, which is red, because it reflects the mida of din, like justice, judgment, like uh, yitzak. It says, hence, this passage opens with the words, this is the chukah of the Torah. Now the term chukah, meaning statute, is related to the word chakukah, meaning etched. This term is employed in the pasuk because the Torah Shebe'al Pei is etched from the Torah Shebkatav. All of its sacred teachings are based on the words of the Torah Shebkatav, the written Torah. This, in fact, is the source for the comment of Rabbeinu Bakia. According to the tradition, Kabbalah. So when we talk about tradition, we're talking about Kabbalah, which, by the way, is in the letters that Shaul wrote to different congregations. He said, the traditions that I've handed over to you, which is the word Kabbalah. goes on to say, the para aduma alludes to the Torah Shabbat Pei, the stringent aspect of the Midat Hadin. So the golden calf caused a defect in the Torah Shabbat Pei. He brings down because it says the para aduma has to atone for the golden calf. Or in the words of Rabbi Moshe Hardarshan, let the mother come and clean up the child's mess. And it says that Shemot 32.1 brings down some wonderfulness. It says, now, if Israel had a Muna and trusted fully the words of Moshe Rabbeinu, foremost of the Nevi'im, the prophets, they would have understood that he would surely keep his word. He told them explicitly at the end of 40 days, I will come within the first six hours of the day. Upon seeing he didn't arrive, when they expected, they should have concluded that they erred in their calculation instead of attributing the problem to Moshe, their leader. Had they adopted this perspective, the golden calf would never have happened. Thus, their inadequate faith in Moshe's words, the words of their teacher, represented an egregious defect in the Torah Shabbat Pei. So, Torah Shabbat Pei literally is from the mouth of Moshe. And it says, consequently, the Torah Shabbat Pei exacted from them the stringency of the Midah Tadin in keeping with the words, beware of their glowing embers lest you be burnt. <clears throat> So Moshe's promise to them was considered Torah Shabbat Pei. That's ridiculous. So 
If you study the Torah at night, this is on page four. I've been reading starting from page one and just went down to page two. That was two pages worth of information. Well, not really, because I skipped a lot of stuff. But it says that uh, we study Torah at night. It says this is a teaching, the Torah, regarding a man who dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in the tent shall be impure for a seven-day period. Zohar Kadosh by Yikra 23b, a person who rises at night to study Torah, the Torah informs him of his iniquities, but not through judgment and punishment, but like a mother who informs her son in gentle ways. A whole lot of stuff here, but it's basically saying that, you know, if we're not keeping a check and tab on our sins, that the, the strict judgments that are due for those things will come down upon us and be spread out, you know, throughout our life and things like that. So different struggles and difficulties and things we go through are based off of that. But if you study the Torah at night, it actually reveals to you your sins that you can repent of them. And there's a more gentle aspect of the consequences, if you will. So he sources out now Bear Coat 5A, where it says if a person sees that afflictions are befalling him, he should scrutinize his deeds. As it says in Acah 340, Lamentations 340, let us search and examine our ways and return to Hashem. If he scrutinized and did not find any shortcomings, he should attribute his afflictions to neglect of Torah study. So there's that whole drop about neglecting of Torah study, but I want to get down into this final part where he talks about the Yetahara. And it says, Kiddushin 30b, Rob Yitzhak said a person's Yetah renews itself against him daily. This implies that on each of the respective seven days of the week, the Yetahara utilizes one of its forces of impurity reflecting one of its seven names. So each of the seven days of the week is an aspect of the Yetzirah. So we just need to know that, believe that, and trust that. And I mentioned again on an Aliyah day that, you know, every day is a do-over. We can't live off of yesterday's glories. We got to be ready to come with it. Brand new. It says, so it is as if there is a new Yetzirah every day, causing a person to sin each day with a different Mita goes on to say that this illuminates for us the words of Rachel Akish expounding on the passage. This is the Torah of a man that dies in his tent. He teaches us that Torah is not or Torah is only retained by someone who sacrifices himself for her sake. Anyone who enters the tent who is in the tent shall be impure for a seven day period. The Torah herself acting like a mother reveals to her son, all ways which he sinned and defiled himself during the past seven days. Namely, the damage caused to the seven Midot due to the influence of the Yetahara and its seven names. Seven names of the Yetahara correspond to the seven aspects, correspond to the seven days. What are the seven? It's called evil, uncircumcised, impure, enemy, obstacle, stone, and hidden one. 
Each one of those names are looming over each one of the days of the week. So, it says that Torah is retained only by someone who sacrifices themselves on her behalf. The benefit of doing so is a person will not be subjected to the ramifications of the Midat Din. Instead, he will be dealt with mercifully because Torah will reveal all his iniquities to him like a mother who informs her children, her child gently and kindly. So the Parsha Hukat teaches us about how we need to renew ourselves daily and receive purification from the Torah and continue to grow and struggle against our Yetzahara. Our Yetzahara is like that spurring agent to push us into Torah. So the more we engage in Torah and refrain from neglecting from it, um, the more we can grow stronger and mitigate all sorts of judgments and everything that comes upon us because of our sins and our shortcomings, which we have a lot of because we're not perfect. We're in our sinful form, but one day we will be resurrected anew. And until that time, we're called to struggle, strain, uh, press towards the high mark of the upper call in Mashiach Yeshua. Hakadosh Baruch please send Mashiach now. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet Vekaye Olam Natah Betokeinu Baruch Atah Adonai Noten HaTorah